This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, Black women have taken the lead in calling for a basic makeover of health care in the United States, a profession that was largely built on experimentation on enslaved Black people, and which has failed to serve Black men, women, and children ever since. And... Reading may be fundamental, but much of what young people read in school is a racist lie. We'll talk with a professor whose reading list tries to correct the misinformation of U.S. and world history. But first, Democrats and Republicans alike stood up and cheered at President Trump's State of the Union address when he introduced Juan Guaido, the right-wing politician who last year proclaimed himself president of Venezuela. Nobody voted for Guaido, and Venezuela already had an elected government. But the U.S. recognized Guaido anyway. American activists then occupied the Venezuelan embassy in Washington to keep it from being taken over by Guaido's supporters. They call themselves the embassy defenders. After almost a month-long siege, four of the defenders were arrested. They faced trial on February 11th and could be in prison for up to a year and fine $100,000 each. One of the defenders is Kevin Zees of Popular Resistance. He says they are being prevented from mounting an effective defense. We had a uh, four-hour hearing before the judge on pretrial motions, and one of those was the prosecutor's motion to restrict what could be said to the jury. The judge had gone into that hearing ready to rule against us. She made that pretty clear at the beginning of the day, but after four hours, she stepped back and said, I want to take this under advisement and write an opinion. So she wrote an opinion that uh, gave us more than we had, which we were going to get nothing, but didn't give us very much. Uh, She mostly ruled in favor of the government. So the jury will not be told that Nicolas Maduro is the president of Venezuela. They will be misled into believing that Juan Guaido is the president and that Carlos Vecchio is his ambassador. Of course, the reality is Guaido never has served a nanosecond as president, and Vecchio is more of a criminal than an ambassador. But the jury will not be told that, and we won't be able to tell the jury that. We also won't be able to tell the jury that we were in the embassy with the permission of the elected government. The little sliver of hope we have is we can say that we believed we were in the embassy with the permission of what we thought was the elected government. We can't make it a statement that Maduro was the government and the foreign ministry gave us permission, so very limited. We won't be able to discuss the the siege we were under for two to three weeks of uh, our presence in the embassy or the Secret Service working with the pro-coup supporters or us 
working with the police when the Procus, of course, broke into the building, broke windows and doors, and we had to have people removed from the building who broke in unlawfully. We got permission from the foreign ministry to do that, and that won't be able to be told to the jury that we cooperated with the police to protect the embassy. We're being charged with interfering with protective functions. So the fact that we were actually protecting the embassy, sometimes with the uh, participation of the police, won't be told. So it's, it's a kind of a through-the-looking-glass trial. It's going to be very hard for us, impossible. We will not be able to testify the whole truth. And so if we decide to testify, it will be a very limited testimony. And so that is problematic. But we still feel like we have a, a strategy that we can win with, and we will do our best to, to challenge this unlawful arrest and violation of international law. That's nothing that can't be discussed. We can't discuss the Vienna Convention and the fact that the U.S. government violated it. So uh, very limited information from the jury. The jury will be misled, and trial will. it's hard to say it's going to be a fair trial. So the judicial reasoning is that whatever the president of the United States says is the president of a foreign country is the president, and no countervailing position can be stated in court. That's right. This is a series of court rulings going back to the 1930s that says that the decision on who is recognized as the leader of a foreign country is a political decision, and that courts cannot overrule it or challenge it. And so uh, we have to live with the fiction, uh, the legal fiction, that Trump's selection of Guaido as president makes him the president. In that, court, in that courtroom, Guaido is the president, even though he's never been a president in Venezuela. So the court's position is that the government's position must be the only recognized facts that can be stated in court. But what does that do to democracy in general, where countervailing or competing versions of truth cannot be aired in the courts? No question. I mean, it's going to be a very interesting trial. It begins on February 11th next week and could last for the rest of the week. And the jury will be in this bizarre bubble of unreality where Guaido is the president. And what this does is undermines democracy in Venezuela because there was a democratic election. I was actually in Venezuela for that election. I saw people voting. I saw an election system that's much better than the U.S. system compared to many states, certainly better than the Iowa caucus. <laughs> but it was a well-run election, a democratic election. There were more than 300 international election observers who unanimously found the election met all the standards of democracy under international law. And these series of court decisions that say it's up to the president who is recognized as the leader of a country undermines Venezuelan democracy. So while President Trump and Pence and Pompeo and Bolton are saying they're going to bring democracy back to Venezuela, what they're really doing is undermining democracy in Venezuela. Venezuela has a very deep democracy. You wouldn't know that from the U.S. media or from the bipartisans in Washington, D.C., but it has a very deep democracy. Unlike us, the right to vote is in their constitution, and they have more than 95% registered voters trying to get 100. The government takes it upon itself to register voters, unlike the U.S., where the government takes it upon itself to 
deregister voters. And so they have a very deep democracy from a constitutional basis and in a practical basis. They do things that no other country does to make sure their elections are without fraud and that the vote counts are accurate. I'll just mention one. On the same day as the election occurs, every precinct in the country is required to do a random check of 54% of the voting machines in their precinct. And that random check involves comparing the paper ballot that is verified by the voter and put into a ballot box with the electronic count. They take the ballot box and take each ballot out. It's a public event where it's in the media can see it, all parties can see it, and the public can see it. They hold up the ballot show it to everybody, and count it. They count every ballot on that randomly selected machine, and if it's accurate with the machine count, then the machine count will stand for that precinct. No other country does this, and it ensures a rapid and accurate vote count. In many U.S. cities and states, we have voting machines that do not provide for a paper record, so we are stuck with only the electronic vote. If the software malfunctions or is tampered with for that electronic vote, every recount will have that same software problem. So you cannot do an independent recount that's accurate or an independent audit that's accurate. The U.S. resists audits, the U.S. resists recounts, in Venezuela, it's the normal course of business. And that's why former President Jimmy Carter said Venezuela has the best system in the world. Exactly right. And their democracy, by the way, doesn't stop at representative democracy. They also are building a direct participatory democracy, starting at the community level. Communities of 200 households can ask the government to be recognized, and they can then hold general assemblies and can make decisions for their community. They need streetlights, they need community center, they need a health center, whatever they need, they go to them, the government, we voted for this, and they get the resources to have that put in, or the government puts it in itself for them. And then these community councils can organize with other community councils and form what's called communes. Two representatives from each community council go to the commune, and they make decisions for larger areas larger numbers of communities, same type of process. They get together, make decisions, and go to the government for the resources to make it happen. The Venezuelan government is in the process of moving toward direct democracy. They see the flaws of representative democracy, and they are moving toward direct. This is building that capacity, that ability of the population to participate in their own future, make their own decision, a real demos, a real people's rule. That's what they're building towards. So we can learn a lot from Venezuela about democracy if we stop calling it a dictatorship. But the jury won't learn anything about Venezuelan democracy, including the fact that even the opposition does not recognize Juan Guaido as their leader. That's the bizarre thing about this. This trial is coming at a time when Juan Guaido is becoming weaker and weaker. His basis for his illegal self-recognition as president, he violated the constitution of Venezuela in multiple ways when he made that move, but it was based on him being president of the National Assembly. Now the opposition is divided. Many of them don't trust Guaido. They see his people around him being corrupt. What They don't know what's happening with all the millions of dollars of USAID money that's gone to the opposition that supports Guaido. And so they're divided, and they refused to vote for Guaido as National Assembly. And this is not a takeover 
of the National Assembly by Maduro as the U.S. media reported. In fact, four positions were filled, a president, two vice presidents, and a secretary. All four people that were voted in were from opposition parties to President Maduro's party. So this was a democratic decision by the National Assembly to say, no, we don't want Juan Guaido and his cronies leading the National Assembly any longer. And, you know, there was such a bizarre vote when Guaido was allowed to go into the Assembly, but he made this bizarre climb of the fence to look like he was being kept out, even though there's video showing him being invited to come in. So that was played all over the world as if the National Assembly was blocking Guaido from entering, which was totally false. So we are told so many falsehoods about Venezuela that's very hard to get the truth out. And we're very worried about the jury being polluted by these lies, by this propaganda, and particularly the recent State of the Union speech where Juan Guaido was in the audience for President Trump. Trump recognized him and both parties stood up and applauded a failed regime change coup d'etat. The U.S. bipartisans, Nancy Pelosi jumped up. She was like, couldn't wait to jump to applaud this failed coup puppet of the United States. It just shows the sickness of the United States that they applaud regime change, even when it fails. And the ongoing regime change, including the economic war, that has cost 40,000 Venezuelans their lives, according to the Center for Economic and Policy Research. In the last two years, U.S. sanctions have added to the deaths of 40,000 Venezuelans, and they're applauding it madly, standing ovation. Only Ro Khanna didn't stand, and Senator Sanders' foreign uh, advisor spoke about how it was inappropriate and was wrong for the House to applaud that so wildly. Now, the judge will only allow you to explain why you did not intend to break the law when you didn't obey the police orders to vacate. But really, he won't allow you to give a full explanation of your intent because he won't allow you to lay out the facts that led you to believe you were not breaking U.S. law. That's right. The statute that we're accused of violating, uh, interfering with protective function of the State Department, requires the government to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that we did so knowingly and willfully. That means that we had a guilty intent to violate the law. We'll do our best to try to explain that we did, never had that intent, that in fact we were protecting the embassy, that we were not trespassing. We'll do our best to get this information out, but within the constraints of what the judge has provided, it certainly will not be the whole truth. In fact, the jury will be misled by uh, false truths that the prosecutors were allowed to put forward, that Juan Guaido was president and Carlos Vecchio it was the basis for our arrest because it was him asking the State Department to remove us, claiming we were trespassing. That was the basis for our arrest, but he's not really an ambassador. Uh, the reality of what's happening is under U.S. law, the president can say Mickey Mouse is the president and Mickey Mouse can then appoint Goofy and Donald Duck as ambassadors and Goofy then can go ahead and say, evict these people from the Venezuelan embassy because Mickey Mouse says so. And that's essentially what's happening in this trial. So it's a very unusual situation. It's obviously not going to be a, a fair trial. It'll be pretty much a charade, but we will do our best to overcome these obstacles.
but you will not likely be allowed to explain that you did not intend to break the law because Juan Guaido was not president and why he was not president and why international law was broken by Trump, not U.S. law by you. That's right. We see ourselves as not violators of law. The real violators of law was the United States. The United States ginned up a phony eviction notice, accused us of trespass when we were not trespassing, and then came into the embassy violating international law as the Vienna Convention, uh, which requires the U.S. to protect embassies in the United States, does not allow the United States to enter those embassies without the permission of the government. The U.S. violated the Vienna Convention, made an unlawful arrest, and we're in the process of fighting that, and we feel very confident in our legal team. We feel very limited in what we can say, but we hope that there's enough that we can say to convince a jury of the truth. And this is not a light charge. There are real consequences. That's right. The potential punishment is up to a year in jail, but also up to a $100,000 fine for each of the four of us. Uh, that's a very unusual high fine for a misdemeanor offense. And so we are facing jail and fines that are significant. And we're very pleased that the defense committee has formed. You can read about that at defendembassyprotectors.org. Defendembassyprotectors.org has updates about this decision as well as other aspects of the case. It's a place where you can donate to our legal defense fund. And it's an independent site from us. But they also talk about how you can come to the court if you want to come to court, this is a public trial. That was Kevin Zeese, one of four activists facing trial for their occupation and protection of the Venezuelan embassy. Black women in the United States are three times as likely to die in childbirth than white women. And black American infant mortality is worse than in many poor countries in the world. Deidre Cooper Owens is with the Department of History and the Humanities in Medicine program of the University of Nebraska. She co-wrote a paper entitled Black Maternal and Infant Health, The Historical Legacies of Slavery. Cooper Owens says much of modern U.S. medicine is based on medical practices devised during slavery. Yes, what is really often surprising for a lot of folk that I speak with, people who've read the articles, not so much the legacy of slavery, but what the legacy of medical racism has wrought in the centuries after slavery has ended. So, for instance, there is not the same amount of concern for Black women's reproductive health from elite white men. And so by that, I often compare the motive of slave owners of physicians, of white men in power who changed the law in the 1600s. They changed a law that had been practiced in Western Europe for a millennia or more, which essentially said in quote unquote legitimate marriages, the children inherit the condition of the father. So, you know, if someone is born to a member of the royal family, that person is a member of the royal family and so on. They inherit freedom. They inherit everything that is attached to the father. When these colonists saw that slavery was a lucrative economic labor system and many of those white men were impregnating black women, all of a sudden they changed a law that had guided their culture 
and their tradition and their heritage for over a thousand years that then said black women pass on the condition of their servitude to their children. So that shapes a lot of things. And after the Atlantic slave trade had been banned in the United States, white elite men were very concerned with increasing black birth rates and having those children also live past the age of one because they represented wealth and also free labor. At the end of the Civil War, when freedom comes, you don't have the same amount of energy devoted to protecting black women's reproductive health. And so it is really a damning fact that in slavery, people were much more interested. And granted, it was for, you know, capitalism reasons. It was not for the kind of benevolence of that society, but they were much more interested in making sure that black women had healthier births. Yes. So we see that black enslaved women were not only enslaved workers and were not only capital investments themselves, but they were also producers of more enslaved workers and more human capital. Right. Exactly. And so after that, when you then have people who essentially say that black women who are pregnant and giving birth are seen as financial burdens on the society. You then have a disinterest in helping those women to maintain their reproductive health. And so what happens by the 21st century is really a crisis in maternal morbidity and infant mortality. It is absolutely a crisis that is only being heard, I think, because the voices in the chorus so to speak, the chorus of protests are getting larger and louder. But this has been ongoing for centuries. And you point out the irony that Black women got worse medical treatment after emancipation than before because the system no longer had a vested capital interest in them. But even under that slave system, the doctors weren't behaving as doctors with a responsibility to the patient. They had a responsibility instead to the owner, the white slave owner. Exactly, exactly. And that's the thing, you know, I I tend to, to use quotation marks when I talk about medical care, because it wasn't necessarily care that was guided by some ethical concern for the patient. They wanted to make sure that the property although it was living property, the property wouldn't be damaged further because the cost benefit for the owner was going to be compromised. And so that doesn't mean that, you know, after freedom, that black women didn't have access to doctors who actually cared about them and treated them the best that they could. But what I hope to do in my writings and my research and my talks is to show that it is a system that was built on anti-blackness. It was a system built on a belief that women were a subset of men. And so when you come out of that system, and even in the 21st century, statistics and studies have shown that white medical students and residents still have these anti-black beliefs about black people's bodies and their supposed inability to manage pain or that black people have thicker skin or our blood thickens more. I mean, just a a number of things that come out of the 18th and the 19th century. When you have 21st century 
white medical students and residents who are telling this to people conducting studies, it is simply another you know, bit of evidence to show the prevalence of anti-Blackness and what we need to do to rid it in the medical establishment. You show how the medical profession was deeply embedded in the slave system with doctors on hand at the auction places and inspecting the bodies of slaves to see if they were sound, that is, if they were worth the money, and that Southern slave medicine deeply infected the broad practice of medicine in the United States and beyond. Yeah, and, you know, in fact, we can go back even to the slave ship where there were often doctors there. There's a wonderful book by Shawande Mustakine that I think it's called Slavery at Sea. But in that book, Shawande Mustakine and another scholar, Marcus Redeker, in his book, The Slave Ship, they talk about the ways that doctors often had to make decisions based on whether an infected enslaved person was going to, quote-unquote, ruin the cargo. And so James DeWolf, one of the more elite and powerful white men who founded Brown University in Rhode Island, he is a captain of a slave ship, and he decides to throw out an enslaved woman, an African captive, who had smallpox because he didn't want her to infect the rest of the ship. And so you can see the influence of medicine even on a ship. And so it becomes a natural part of the slave market. It becomes a natural part of the landscape of slavery in the South, and even when those northern colonies had slavery too. And so it's just really weaved into the fabric of this country. You use the term racialized medical thought. What's that? Racialized medical thought, you know, I often tell, you know, tell my students when I'm teaching, I said, inanimate objects cannot be raced. But in a racist society, that happens all the time. So, for instance, I often talk about the beliefs that the creators, inventors, scientists, researchers have about blackness, for instance. And so I tell them about Samuel Cartwright. He's most famously known for uh, writing an article about distinctive Negro diseases, but he was also an inventor of this machine called the spirometer. Scholar Lundy Braun has written a wonderful book about this. But Samuel Cartwright creates a machine in the 19th century that is supposed to assess the lung capacity of folk. But really, what this machine does is determines that Black people, in fact, have a weakened lung capacity. And in the 21st century, the spirometer is still used. But this is the thing. Because of the ideas around black inferiority, around anti-blackness, you have to punch in the race of the patient. And that then determines the reading of the spirometer. And that affects your insurance premiums. I mean, all kinds of things. And the fact that doctors know race-based medicine is false. Because if it weren't false, why in the world would these doctors in the 18th and 19th century use black patients to cure white patients? So they know that these distinctions aren't as concrete as they have written about and as they've stated. And yet what they've invented, what they've written, what they've done goes against the very practice 
that they were involved in. And so racialized medical thought is really imbuing an anti-blackness or a white supremacist way of thinking onto an inanimate object, onto an idea. And it becomes really three-dimensional and impacts our lives, our society in really negative ways. In a sense, lots of black people have died so that some white people could live better. Black women became the guinea pigs for the new science of gynecology. Yes, indeed. There are cesarean section experiments that went on in Haiti and Louisiana on enslaved women. Ovariotomy experiments, and that's a removal of ovarian tumors that happened in Kentucky on black women free and enslaved. And of course, James Marion Sims is one of the more well-known medical surgeons and physicians who experimented exclusively in the 1840s on Black women who were suffering from a gynecological condition that was created during childbirth. And so once again, it goes to show that in these men having a free access to these women's bodies, but also using these bodies as kind of universal bodies to cure everyone, you can see the fallacies and the racial fictions that crop up. I often have people who say, didn't they think it was hypocritical while they were performing these experiments and writing about Negro distinctiveness that they were using black people to cure white people? And I said, you know, they never addressed it in their writings, but it seemed so obvious that if they were writing about a cervix in an enslaved woman, that clearly her cervix looks the same as a white woman's cervix, right? That there's no no race or biological factor that is attributed to a black woman's cervix or a white woman's cervix. And yet they created whites-only hospitals and Negro-only hospitals. And it just is, you know, sometimes mind-boggling for me when I see the level of commitment that these folk had to anti-blackness. You point out in your paper that the disparity between black and white infant deaths is greater today than it was during slavery. Yes, and that is a really sad fact. I also have to give a note of recognition, too, to my co-author, Charlotte Fett, who's an amazing scholar of history. But we wrote this article, and it really is a commentary piece for the Journal of American Public Health, one of the anonymous reviewers said, essentially, you need to show evidence of this. And so we essentially showed evidence that it is, in fact, more challenging for Black women in the 21st century to have children without complications, you know, to have children who are not placed in NICU, to have children who don't have higher rates of low-weight births who are not dying before the age of one. Black women and birthing people are 243% more likely to die from pregnancy-related conditions, but also childbirth. And that should be really frightening for folk. And a large part of this is because I think, you know, as I mentioned before, the ways in which freedom takes away the focus on Black women's fecundity. And in fact, Now black women who are reproductively capable, who had been praised in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, are now being seen as, in the 20th century, 
welfare queens who are bilking the system with all of their children. And by the 21st century, they've been reduced to sexually irresponsible baby mamas. You know, why in the world would you want to protect her by having children? And the powers that be are blaming black women and black people in general themselves for their medical problems. Yes, indeed. You know, you often read about um, the kind of patient blaming that goes on. And, you know, I tell anybody, if you have access in time, all you need to do is open up a medical journal from the 18th century and the 19th century, and you see that that kind of victim blaming or patient blaming has a very long history. You know, back then, doctors would write about the ignorant granny midwives or the ignorant slave nurses who almost killed the woman and her child. In the 21st century, in the late 20th century, you found that doctors would say, black women have horrible diets. They're too overweight. They don't go to prenatal appointments. And so I'm often confounded by this because the average size of the American woman is between a 14 and a 16, which means we're not talking about slim people for the most part. So if the average American woman, and that includes anybody who identifies as a woman, is in a plus size in terms of her clothing, that means there are a lot of fat white women too. But they are not having the same kinds of startling deaths and and complicated pregnancies as black women. And there's no blame assigned to these women as well who are eating the same, you know, essentially the same kinds of food, the same diet. And so that's one example. Also, people have to recognize there's a complicated history. Black women will go to prenatal appointments. But when you go into a place and you tell a medical practitioner how you're feeling, you explain to them your concerns, and you're not believed, or you're treated disrespectfully, that affects your body. There's a physiological response to that kind of disrespect and anti-Blackness that can in turn affect your pregnancy. And so thankfully, a lot of the reproductive justice and birthing justice activists have been really advocating in places, especially, especially like New York and California, that have created laws now that shift the blame, and and you know what, let me not use the word blame, but they have shifted the focus onto the medical industry where they're asking doctors and nurses to have a more reflective practice and way of being so that they are also on board with helping these women live, their babies live, and also not have the kinds of complications during pregnancy and childbirth that they are experiencing now. Black bodies aren't different, but the conditions that black people are forced to live in in this country are racially different. The medical profession doesn't necessarily take that into account either. Right. And so the wonderful thing that is happening as the academy in general has become a bit more democratized, and by that I simply mean, you know, there are people who now are black or brown are yellow, they come from working class backgrounds or poor backgrounds, and it's not simply the domain of elite white men in particular, you now have people who are actively doing the kind of research that shows that 
black people aren't crazy. That <laughs> they're not, you know, they're not lying, but they are actively responding to the anti-blackness and the intense racism that comes with the ways that people in this society have been socialized. So, for instance, there is a study that came out a few months ago out of the University of Southern California, where researchers have shown, and there were also some researchers from UCLA in this study as well, but they have shown that the physiological responses that Black people have to racism are making us sick, and they have the quantitative data to back it up. There was also a recent study that shows that the belief in God or supreme being as a white man also affects the ways that white Americans in particular vote, who they hire, who they deem as worthy. Because even if the person that you worship or the being that you worship reflects you or someone that you think is more worthy, those are going to be the people that you identify with more. And so thankfully, because of the democratization of science and also the academy, we are now having people who are out here doing this kind of work. And they're saying, oh, so you want empiricism. <laughs> you want quantitative data. Well, here are the stats. It's really hard to deny that. You seem to be calling for more Black power, Black community power in the medical arena. And you point to some pioneering examples from the Black Panther Party. Exactly. The Black Panther Party, I think that during... Jim Crow, and it wasn't necessarily because of Black people's choice to segregate. It was because they were responding to these, once again, these anti-racist laws. But in places like Mound Bayou in the Mississippi Delta, the building up of Black hospitals. You had a few decades later with the Black Panther Party, you had they're making connections between people's inability to have sustained nutritious meals and sickness or the inability to do well because of hunger, you know, especially for children. And so they're linking the social factors to why there might be what we today call an achievement gap in certain areas. So whether that be health or education. And so they really had a more holistic view, I think, and also one that worked with regard to understanding the needs that the black community had, but also the services that were needed. And so I am hopeful because there are a number of black practitioners now, a number of black OBGYNs. You have a number of black women who have created doula programs. Black midwives are still small, but it's a career that's growing slowly, but at least it's growing. And you have a number of reproductive justice activists who have been lobbying for policy changes. So I think that comes out of a deep history and a connection, as you said, to having Black power harnessed and manifested in ways that actually save our lives and beyond just saving our lives, improve the quality of our life. Reproductive justice is based on a principle not simply of choice. Typically, when white feminists talk about reproductive medicine, they tend to focus largely on abortion and choice. And reproductive justice activists aren't saying that isn't important, but what they're saying is access is much more important when we think about black people's lives. So when we think about the social services that black people have in urban areas, there is a greater sense that one can be protected 
because at least there is access to services. But if you live in a small county, and I, I went to high school, my family's from a really small, very poor, predominantly black county in the low country of South Carolina, Williamsburg County, and there has not been a dedicated OBGYN ward in the hospital for decades. So that means if you are poor, you are black, and you live in a rural space, you might have to go to the next town or either the next county over. And in the case of people who live in Williamsburg County, they have to go to the next county to have their babies. And so access is not available in many cases to poor black people who live in rural spaces. That was Deidre Cooper Owens speaking from the University of Nebraska. It's often said that reading is fundamental. But what if most of what people read is historically wrong? Nana Osei-Opare teaches history at Fordham University. Osei-Opare has his students read a comprehensive list of authors and subjects from the Kenyan Mau Mau to South Africa liberationist Steve Biko, former Ghanaian president Kwame Nkrumah, and radical writer and psychiatrist Franz Fanon. Near the top of the list is a book by Ruth First, who was assassinated by the white regime in South Africa. Ruth First, South African Jewish communist. The reason why I assigned her piece is because, you know, sometimes we get into this idea that the liberation struggle was a solely ANC struggle and a very man-male-dominated struggle. So I get the piece by Ruth First in her book to show that, one, it was more than black people engaged in the struggle, and two, communists were engaged in this struggle, and three, she's able to talk about what it's like being non-black in prison and to illuminate, even in jail, how her whiteness protects her from the harshest things the South African state will do to her. So it's a very interesting piece, and people are shocked. <laughs> yeah. Yes, most Americans don't understand the role, the key role that was played by the South African Communist Party, or that so many black Africans were members, or that the majority of the South African Communist Party is non-white today. Yes, it's fascinating. The late Stephen Ellis, and as you know, one of the ways apartheid government and the U.S. government and, and you know, colonial governments try to undermine African and black liberation and equality movements was to say they were communists, was to come up with this idea that Moscow is, you know, directing and dictating their will. And one of the fascinating things I think about this by Ruth First's text, and another one by Bob Edgar, but a black African communist, is that they show that these black figures have their own agency. And it's not that the communists are at all using them. And that they're even trying to help out the black people because they've come to the realization that their goals are worthy, even if they're not going to have a class warfare, you know. Yes, and Edgar's book points out that these communist parties in Africa were also plagued by racism internally. Yes, and it's sad, but, you know, you look at it and you're like, well, that makes perfect sense, is when I tee up the reading, 
I say, you know, the Soviet Union is a space where class is the issue and not race, right? And they try and they're thinking forward in terms of the racial question. But you see that in the communist parties in South Africa, the communist parties of Africa, in Britain, in France, that many of them, when Moscow says you have to include black people or you have to fight against colonialism, many of them leave the party. Many of them don't want to do it. And so you see that racism cuts across the fascists, the capitalists, the communists, the liberals, racism is racism. And that's all something which I want students to see, that there's something there and why is it there. Britain, a few years ago, agreed to pay compensation to some of the victims of colonial oppression in Kenya. You list a book that details that oppression of those suspected of being in the Mau Mau. Yeah, it's a book written by Carolyn Elkins. She's a professor at Harvard. And one of the fascinating things about the book is a lot of Western media and Western historical accounts in the public image is we like to see and tend to see World War II and the Nazi experience as an aberration. And so actually before I assign this reading a few weeks prior in class, I assign a piece by Benjamin Madley. And it's called briefly From Africa to Auschwitz. And it links the rise of concentration camps and this genocidal thing from what is today Namibia during German colonialism to the Holocaust. And so when I get to World War II, I tell the students, you know, and after World War II, you have the Human Rights Convention, everyone denounces the Germans, and yet within 10 years, the British are creating their own concentration camps. Again, right, because they do 50 years prior in South Africa. So the question that I'm posing to my students is, what is a liberal empire? Can such a thing be there? And to show them again that when we talk about colonial ideology, there is a consistency that goes throughout. And I'll say Western countries have been good at trying to separate themselves from the German example, when in fact they don't have their deep, dark secrets. And Elkins initially believed that there were no such camps, but then as she began digging, and as we know, all of these major empires, major colonizing empires, Britain, South Africa, the States, America, these entities, these countries take excellent notes. For all their faults, they take excellent notes. And when she realized that these notes were missing, thousands of files were missing, that's when she began to keep on digging. And then and with interviews with hundreds of people, was able to tell the world that look, it's not just Kenyans saying this, black Kenyans saying this, but this is the book, is the evidence refuted. And so it's good for the students as an eye-opener for them also to realize the lengths, the extent to which white settlers and the colonial empires would go to to maintain the status quo. Kwame Nkrumah, the first president of Ghana, is recognized as one of the godfathers of Pan-Africanism. But you recommend a book by Nkrumah that he wrote after he was overthrown by that CIA coup, that is, after his project had been disrupted. 
Yes, and this book, A Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare, A Guide to the Armed African Revolution by Nkrumah, is actually one of his less read, least well-known books. And the reason why I sign it, it's a short book, a relatively short book, but in it, I believe it distills the core of Nkrumah's arguments. And the one which everyone probably knows him for is Pan-Africanism. So he details what Pan-Africanism is. He details why Pan-Africanism is necessary in the African context. And he also discusses neocolonialism. He discusses why, what is neocolonialism? What are the different forms it operates in? And how can we combat neocolonialism? And then the shift in this particular text at the end is, that Nkrumah is for a long time in his life, while he's building training and military camps for other African liberation fighters in Ghana, when he's Ghana's leader, he's not really somebody who believes in armed resistance. But after he's overthrown, he then shifts and he says armed resistance is necessary for Africans to really gain their independence. So this book, I think, should be read more as a really nice, compact, small, easy-to-carry text on Nkrumah's views after he's able to sit down and reflect on what has happened during his life. And back to South Africa, Steve Biko is a fairly well-known name, but before he was assassinated, he didn't write any books, but some of his writings have been compiled, and they're required reading in your class. Yes, you know, it's funny you say Steve Biko is well-known. Many of my students, non-black, even blacks, don't know who Steve Biko is. And it's fascinating that they read Steve Biko. And one of the biggest things of Steve Biko is, especially in as I teach, is he's critiquing white liberalism. Steve Biko critiques white privilege and white liberalism. And he is questioning why black people accept the idea that white liberals have to lead any black African liberation struggle. And he says... They've been leading us for so long, and yet we're still where we are. Why are we so foolish to accept that things will change? So for many of my white students, it's a point of inflection. Because many of them tend to be liberal as well, or think of themselves as liberal. So Steve Biko's text, when they read it, it really shocks them to the core. And they begin to think about their own privilege. And I think one of the, I think two very fascinating parts of the text I sign of Biko's writings is one, he says, for the white liberals, students, the young people who go to college, how many of them would relinquish themselves going to college to stand in solidarity with the black people who aren't allowed to go to college? And if the argument is, the response is, oh, but it's unrealistic, then Biko says, and that's precisely the point. The point is that you still benefit from the system. We cannot. And if your point is unrealistic, then you have to recognize that you cannot really help. We have to help ourselves. And the next point, I think, which is important, is that Biko says, you know, you kick a man on the ground along to that effect, and then you tell that man how to respond to being kicked. And he says, this is an issue with white liberalism, that they're telling black people how to respond to the brutality they face. And so 
Steve Biko in, in his way is, you know, calling on black people to think about that it's it's their struggle and they should fight for their own rights. And one of the things, the third point which I didn't want to get into, but is black theology. And Biko says, you know, many Africans go to church and he says, it is the pastors have to, to preach in the church that it is a sin to allow oneself to be oppressed. And that if God is God, where is the black God? Why has the black God let the white God oppress us for so long? So he says that black theology should really switch itself to become a liberation theology, to push for black liberation. So it's an interesting uh, take on the one hand for my white liberal students, and on the one hand, my black students who go to church frequently and, you know, oftentimes the church and Christianity, not all, but often can be seen as a very pacifist, accept things as they are today, pray that things get better. And if they don't get better in this life, then for sure the next life. But he's saying, no, we should get things better today in this lifetime. How do you assess the effectiveness of exposing your students to these reading lists? It's difficult. You can never quite know. I get letters after the class from students talking about how this was their favorite class because it's just a complete eye-opener. I have other students writing to me or telling me that, you know, I can now understand why some people resort to certain methods to gain their independence. Or I never knew that the British and whatnot were doing this. And so in their letters, I mean, even in class discussions, you can see the shock. And so, yes, I think it's been well received. I haven't yet, but who knows, it might be in the shadows being criticized for signing these texts and what they mean. Well, yes, and maybe not in the shadows. What about <laughs> what about the higher-ups at your institution? Uh, nothing yet. Nothing yet. Maybe they don't know what it is I'm assigning. So, <laughs> But uh, nothing yet. I think one of the ways, in my institution, it's been fine. And it is what these people thought was necessary to do. And what I do also in the beginning of the class and during the classes, I have quotes from people like Cecile Rhodes from Hegel and people from apartheid South Africa, just with their thoughts on Africans and black people. And so the students for themselves can read it word for word, verbatim, what these people thought about Africans. And that from these people saying themselves that the Africans inferior and that we would never give them independence. And it's from there that I say, this is the reality and this is what these people are fighting against. And this is why they're doing A, B, C, D. They might have failed, they might not agree with it, but then also, like, what would you do in their shoes? What would you do now? And I think that pushes them too. You know, it makes them uncomfortable. And I think my current institution, uh, Fordham University, our president, he told us in our orientation, I want you to make the students uncomfortable, challenge them. And so this is what these texts do. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.